You can open your Bibles to Galatians chapter 1, verses 6 through 10. And as you're opening there to our verses of concentration this Sunday, imagine you're having the worst, very worst week of your life. On Sunday afternoon after church, you tear your ACL in a pickup basketball game. The next Tuesday at work, you find out you're probably going to be laid off by the end of the week. On Wednesday, your car breaks down. On Thursday, your plumbing and your electricity go out. And then on Friday, of course, you lose your job. If that were my week, I'd be pretty stressed out. And and those kinds of weeks are rare, I grant you, but you understand just how tough day-to-day living is. But then imagine on Saturday, you're charged with the crime you've never committed, first-degree murderer, actually, and you're facing the death sentence. All the stress you had with the other stuff falls by the wayside compared to the fear of dying on the electric chair. But you go through the trial and it's clear that you're innocent. The jury comes out and pronounces you not guilty. Imagine the relief you'd feel. Imagine the happiness and peace that would overwhelm your heart. You still have a torn ACL, mind you. Uh, Your car is is still broken. You have to take an Uber to get home. You you still don't have a job, but for that day at least, you are celebrating your not guilty verdict. All the problems that were going on before you, before you got falsely charged, are nothing compared to a death sentence. But imagine this. Let's say you did commit the crime, and, and it was certain you would go to the chair. In fact, You really don't have to imagine this. This was you and I, and infinitely worse, before God saved us. And this is the thing. You still commit the same crimes you used to against God that warranted eternal punishment, but now God treats you as if you had never sinned. What changed? The reality of justification. We are studying the book of Galatians, and the book of Galatians focuses on the doctrine of justification. According to theologian Louis Burkhoff, justification is the judicial act of God in which he declares on the basis of the righteousness of Christ that all the claims of the law are satisfied with respect to the sinner. In other words, when you first believe in the gospel, God says at the beginning of your Christian life, I am going to treat you as if you were my son Jesus Christ, even though you will continue to sin against me for the rest of your life. Even though you are guilty in the divine court of God's justice, you are declared righteous forever because Jesus' righteousness is yours by faith. By the way, justification is a once-for-all declaration. There is no more or less in justification. You are either fully justified or not justified at all. And this is what we're going after in our study in the book of Galatians. We want to lean hard into the truth of our full and irrevocable justification. 
Last Sunday, Paul began uh, this letter declaring the full legitimacy of his apostleship, reminding the Galatians the blessings of the gospel. He repeated what the gospel was in summary and form, and then with, he finished with the doxology, giving God all the praise for saving us. In this morning's passage, we're going to consider verses 6 through 10. And the main truth of these verses is that there is only one gospel. The content, content of these verses will prepare us for what will be discussed in Galatians until the end of the letter. After we go through and consider all these verses this morning, what will be obvious is that there is basically just one subject that is going to be discussed in what follows, and it is this, the gospel. Specifically, what is the one true gospel Paul is defending? What is the counterfeit gospel the Galatians are tempted to turn to? And then, what are all the implications that flow out of holding to this true gospel. And so let me read the verses we're going to study this morning before we continue on. Chapter 1, verses 6 through 10. I marvel that you are so quickly deserting, deserting Him who called you by the grace of Christ for a different gospel, which is really not another, only there are some who are disturbing you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should proclaim to you a gospel contrary to the gospel we have proclaimed to you, let him be accursed. As we have said before, so I say again now, if any man is proclaiming to you a gospel contrary to what you received, let him be accursed. For am I now seeking the favor of men or of God? Or am I striving to please men? If I were still striving to please men, I would not be a slave of Christ. Normally, when Paul begins his letters in the New Testament, it begins with him identifying himself, and he does that in verse 1. He's an apostle. And then he uh, expresses his desire that the recipients of his letter receive grace and peace, as we see in verse 3. And then what usually follows after that is often an expression of thanksgiving for the receivers of his letter. But in, instead of his usual thanksgiving in verses 6 through 10, Paul replaces his standard thanksgiving with a harsh rebuke instead. And yet, it will be in this re- rebuke that we will uh, consider three qualities, qualities of the gospel that will help us treasure and never compromise the doctrine of justification by faith. And the first quality that we see in these verses is found in verses 6 and 7. Number one, first point of our morning, is that the gospel is exclusive. The gospel is exclusive. Brothers and sisters, we just have one gospel, and we better get it right. You ever see uh, some of those videos where they have, you know, some, something to take care of? You know, they're painting a, a line on the street and, and it gets messed up and somebody says, you just had one job. You just had one job and you messed it up. And so when it comes to us, we have one gospel and we, we need to make sure we get it right. In verse 6, Paul introduces us, introduces us to the situation that prompted this urgent letter 
and it, and it explains why Paul shreds the Galatians into pieces instead of thanking God for them. He says in verse 6, I marvel that you are so quickly deserting him who called you by the grace of Christ for a different gospel. The Galatians are deserting God. They are in the, in the midst of debating whether or not they should continue to believe in the gospel they first heard from him. And, and in verse 6, Paul equates the desertion of God with believing in a false gospel. They're thinking about deserting him described by Paul in these gospel terms who, verse 6, called you by the grace of Christ for a different gospel. That word called is a favorite word of Paul's. It's a, refer, it's a reference to the internal call or what theologians call the effectual call. And you see, when the, when the gospel is publicly preached, we call that a general calling or, or, or an external calling. But for those God has predestined, the general call becomes an internal call or, or an effectual call where the chosen, where chosen sinners hear the gospel and then they choose to receive Christ. Paul says that he is amazed that they are, they are thinking about betraying God who called them, verse 6, by the grace of Christ. This is a synonym for the gospel because the effectual call of God happens through the instrument of the gospel. In other words, the Galatians are deserting God who called them by the true gospel, the grace of Christ, for a different gospel, a gospel of works. Paul is marveling, he is shocked, he is flabbergasted that those God has effectually called through the gospel, genuinely saved people are confused about what the gospel actually is. Paul doesn't understand because he was called to Christ through the same gospel. Look at verse 15 and 16. When God, who had set me apart from my uh, mother's womb and called me through his grace, was pleased to reveal his son in me. Why are so many Christians so wishy-washy about the gospel of justification by faith alone? You know, I went to seminary. I'm a pastor, so I am no stranger to theological debates and, and differences. Once in a while, in Sunday school or on Friday, you know, there'll be some heated discussions on theology, and that's fine and dandy. But I'm hardly ever surprised. I'm not surprised when people get Genesis wrong or when they get Israel wrong or infant baptism wrong. But when I, when I meet Christians, bona fide believers, who I am reasonably sure are saved, who go to pretty sound churches, when I find out just how shallow their understanding of the gospel is, that always surprises me. We all compromise in various ways as sinners, but when the compromise has to do with this core doctrine of the gospel, I never fail to marvel at this ignorance. I'm amazed when Christians and Christian organizations partner with churches who do not teach the true gospel. 
We just have one gospel to get right. Just one. It isn't that hard, or it shouldn't be that hard. The Reformers called justification the material principle or the material cause of the Reformation. And this is kind of Aristilian concepts. If something is a material cause, it is that out of which something is made. The material cause of the Reformation or the doctrine out of which the, the Reformation was made is the doctrine of justification by grace alone through faith alone. That means the essence of what it means to be a Protestant is your commitment to justification. If you compromise justification, you might be Catholic or you might be part of a cult, but you are no Protestant. Paul was not just marveling about how they were deserting God. He was marveling of how quickly it was happening. It was about a year after Paul had first preached the gospel to them that they were now thinking about leaving Christ for this different gospel. What was that different gospel? Well, the true gospel is salvation by grace alone through faith alone. The different gospel is what Paul calls later in chapter 2 in so many words, a justification by works of the law. Look at chapter 2, verse 16. He says, what the gospel is not, and what the gospel is in verse 16, and he says, nevertheless, knowing that a man is not justified by the works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ, even we have believed in Christ Jesus, so that we may be justified by faith in Christ, and not by the works of the law, since by the works of the law no flesh will be justified. The false teachers were saying that you needed to come to Christ through Judaism. And that's why the false teachers are known as the Judaizers. The Judaizers taught that in order to be in a right standing with God, you had to be circumcised. You had to keep all the Jewish rituals and dietary laws. You had to obey the entire Mosaic law for that matter, in addition to believing in Christ. And so Paul in verse 7 begins by describing this, this different gospel. Uh, 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 well, he, he, he begins describing this false message as a different gospel in verse 6. And the word for different here in verse 6 is the word, Greek word heteron. We get heterodox from this word. This is a different kind of gospel, a, a heterodox gospel. And then Paul corrects himself mid-breath at the beginning of verse 7 when he says, it's really not another gospel, it's no gospel at all. You see, for the modern practical Christian, the difference between Paul's gospel and the Judaizer's gospel might seem trivial. So I love what J. Grisham Machen in his classic Christianity and liberalism says about Galatians 1. He says, to the modern church, this difference would have seemed to be a mere theological subtlety. The Judaizers believed that Jesus was the Messiah. They believed in the resurrection. These false teachers affirmed that faith in Christ was necessary for salvation. But the trouble was that they 
is that they believed that something else was also necessary. They believed what Jesus had done needed something more, and the something more was the believer's own efforts to keep the law. Paul said that a man, number one, first believes in Christ, number two, then he is justified before God, number three, then he immediately proceeds to keep God's law. The Judaizers said that a man, number one, believes in Christ. And number two, he keeps the law of God the best he can. And then number three, he is justified. The difference is just the order of the three steps. I mean, for the sake of Christian unity, couldn't Paul have compromised just a little bit? Paul is just kind of out of order. It's the same thing. What's the big deal? For Paul, it was a huge deal. And then Machen writes, because, quote, Paul saw very clearly that the difference between the Judaizers and himself was the difference between two entirely distinct types of religions. It was the difference between a religion of merit and a religion of grace. You see, if Christ provides only part of the way to God, then the rest of the way to Him leaves you hopeless under a load of sin. The guilty soul finds himself under the agony of whether he has done enough to bridge that gap. Machen says again, to add to the work of Christ by our own merit, Paul saw clearly is the very essence of unbelief. Christ will do everything or nothing, and the only hope is to throw ourselves unreservedly on His mercy and to trust Him for all. For some of the Galatians, their capitulation meant possibly that they were never saved in the first place, and by going over to the side of the Judaizers, it meant they would never be saved for that matter. For others, the distortion of the Gospel meant a disturbing of the soul. Look at verse 7. It's, it's, you're, you're believing this different gospel, which is really not a gospel at all. Only, verse 7, there are some who are disturbing you. There are some who are disturbing you. The word literally uh, means to make water turbulent or to cause to be in a, in a disturbed state. These believers were being disturbed within the depths of their soul by this false gospel. John uses the same word in John 13.21 at the Last Supper describing Jesus at the prospect of Judas' betrayal. John writes, when Jesus had said these things, he became disturbed in spirit and bore witness and said, truly, truly, I say to you that one of you will betray me. To believe that you have to be good enough to earn God's favor is no small disturbance to your soul. To think by your law keeping that somehow you can get to a place where God would accept you cannot, will not give you peace. Listen to me. Because 
the pause with then and then God will accept me is that every day the law is reminding me at the same time that I've broken every single law. Especially when you read Jesus' sermon on the Mount and he says things like this. You have heard it was said, you shall not commit adultery, but I say that everyone who looks at a woman to lust for her for has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Jesus was done with Pharisees, you think you're keeping the law, but you're really not. And this was Paul's problem before he found Christ's righteousness. Paul's confidence was in the law, but this was his problem in, in Romans 7. Go to Romans 7. And this is the issue when you try to make the law or your own efforts or your own obedience as the basis of your righteousness before God. Paul says in verse 8 of chapter 7, But sin, taking opportunity, and go back, uh, go back, let's go to verse 7, it'll make it a little easier. Is the law sin? May it never be. Rather, I would not have come to know sin except through the law, for I would not have known about coveting if the law had not said, You shall not covet. See, when Paul first came to the law about coveting, he thought, Hey, it's pretty easy. I just see this commandment about not coveting my neighbor's wife, and I, I just now need to obey this law. This, this law is pretty, this law thing is pretty easy. But then it says in verse 8, but sin, taking opportunity through the commandment, worked out in me coveting of every kind. Once I was exposed to the commandment to not covet, then I realized I was coveting all the time. Then I realized I could not stop coveting. Then he says in verse 8, for apart from the law, sin is dead. If I didn't know about this law, sin would have, would have been dead. I would have never realized my sin. I would have never known my sin. Now I once was alive apart from the law. I thought I was alive apart from the law. I thought I was a pretty good person. But when this commandment came, sin revived and I died. And this commandment, which was to lead to life, was found to lead to death for me. I thought by going to the law, by keeping the law, I would find life, but instead it killed me. It killed me. It showed me I was a great sinner. When Paul began to understand the true requirements of God's moral law, at some point before his conversion, his sin came alive. And Paul realized his true condition. He realized his spiritual deadness. And then he saw that all of his religious accomplishments and credentials were rubbish. The law that all thought would save him killed him instead. And Luther had the same problem. He would spend hours, if you know a little bit about Martin Luther's life, he would spend hours in the monastery confessing his sin to his uh, uh, his, his, the head monk in the monastery and the head monk would be driven to exhaustion and he would say, Luther, will you stop it? Okay. 
And Luther, after spending hours confessing his sin, trying to get right with God, would then leave the confession booth wondering if he had forgotten to confess one sin. Well, doubting whether his confession was sincere enough. Luther writes at that time, quote, for whatever work might be accomplished, there would always remain an, 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 an anxious doubt whether it pleased God or whether he required something more as the experience of all self-justifiers proves. You see, one of the barriers to embracing justification is a person's refusal to see his own sin in light of God's holiness. In order to appreciate the importance of justification, you must first feel the reality and gravity of your sin and guilt before a holy and righteous God. You must first realize just how much your sin deserves the wrath of God and divine condemnation. You must come to a place where you understand with the clearest sobriety that you are too sinful to contribute to your salvation and therefore need a complete rescue. On the other hand, those who have renounced trust in any efforts of your own at law-keeping or in some ceremony or in some ritual to those who put all their trust in Christ alone, by faith alone, according to God's grace alone, you can have the sweetest and deepest sense of assurance that your sin can never separate you from the love of God in Christ Jesus. Even on your worst day, you can go to the Father with confidence. You can be assured that God will never reject you because of your sinfulness. You never have to feel apprehensive about opening God's word, about prayer, because you're afraid of condemnation. Paul says in Romans 8.1, Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Verse 7, go back to Galatians. Galatians, uh, I want to point out an important word there. And then uh, in verse 7 it says, there are some who are disturbing you. This this different gospel, this gospel of works, it's disturbing you. And they they want to distort the gospel of Christ. That, that word distort is, a, is an important word. It's a word used for strong contrasts. It denotes a radical change of as of water into blood or fresh water into salt water or feasting into morning, or daylight into darkness. The, the, the Greek word is translated turn in Acts 2.20 when Luke writes, the sun will be turned into darkness and the moon into blood. In other words, to add the smallest work to faith, like circumcision, like baptism, or even if you are asked to pick up a feather in addition to believing in Christ, Paul says, distorts the gospel of Christ. And the distortion is like the difference between day and night. It's a, it's a, it's a, it's a different gospel. It's not even a gospel. See, in order to never lose your awe and reverence for the gospel of 
justification. You must realize, number one, that the gospel is exclusive. We just have one gospel. And, and number two, you must understand that the gospel is judgmental, verses 8 and 9. The gospel brings the greatest of all judgments when distorted. Paul, in verse 8, uses hyperbole to emphasize, listen carefully, it's not the messenger that ultimately matters, it is the message. Listen to this. The gospel preached by Paul is the true gospel, not because it is Paul who preached it. Listen. It is the true gospel because the risen Christ gave it directly to Paul to preach it. It's not because he's an apostle that you should believe Paul's gospel. That's not, that's not what he's saying in chapter 1. Paul is saying, no, it's because I've got that gospel directly from Jesus himself, and so this is the reason why you need to believe it. And, and this is his point in verse 1. Paul, an apostle, not sent from men, nor through man, but through Jesus Christ. This is his point in verse 18. Even if an angel, or even if Paul himself, brought a different message from that which had proved its saving powers to the Galatians when they first heard and believed it, both the messenger and the message should be rejected. The truth of the message depends on its content, not on the credentials of a council, or the stature of bishops, or the power of a pope. The truth of the message of the gospel depends on whether it accords with the Old Testament, does it accord with the words of Jesus in the Gospels, does it accord with the rest of the New Testament. When Paul will prove the validity of his Gospel, he goes back to Genesis. He quotes David. He quotes other places in Scripture to prove that this is always, in a sense, has been the Gospel. Paul, in verse Eight, he uses hyperbolic language to exclude any source that might claim divine authority to redefine the gospel. No Latter-day prophet, no religious body, no council, no church, no angel can change the gospel Paul received directly from Christ. And he says that the penalty for changing that gospel two times in verses 8 and 9, the penalty is this. Let him be a curse. And in verse 9, let him be a curse. The Greek word for curse is anathema. In other words, Paul says that if anybody is preaching another gospel, let him go to hell. Romans 9.3 uses the same word when Paul writes, For I could, I could wish that I myself were a curse separated from Christ. So in this series, I am intentionally going to give you a lot of hard Bible data, lots of uh, church history names and quotes, uh, lots of definitions, uh, lots of uh, verses and explanations of passages that some people think contradict justification. Next week, I'm going to talk about James. I'm going to talk about the basics of hermeneutics. I'm going to dive into what Jesus thought about Scripture and tradition. It's not going to be very exciting. You might need to bring a, a large cup of coffee. But it's absolutely necessary 
because the stakes are so high, as we see Paul tells us in verses 8 and 9, people who fail to believe in justification by faith alone, people who stray from this gospel doctrine will receive a double curse. They will go to hell unless we are experts in justification. In order to rescue people heading in the wrong direction, uh, going toward a, a different gospel, which is not a, a gospel at all, the only thing they're going to listen to is hard, boring Bible data. Sentimental stories don't work for people who are in this boat. Interesting illustrations don't do very much. The confused want and need a clear and powerful understanding of your Bible. When they're saying, well, Pastor, what about James? What about James? There James says, man is justified by, by works. See, it, it, me telling them a really sentimental story about how my dog died, that doesn't work. I need to go to the context of James. I need to go to the details of Galatians and Romans in order to convince them. So that's what I'm going to bring in the series in Galatians that I'm not sorry about. In verse 9, Paul repeats what he said in verse 8. He re reaffirms the curse, but applies it more broadly. Not just Paul an apostle, not just an angel. He says, if any man, verse 9, if any man is proclaiming to you a gospel contrary to what you have received, let it be a curse. If an apostle, if an angel can be a curse by God for preaching a false gospel, then certainly anybody else who preaches a false message can be damned. Verse 8 was not a momentary, irrational, emotional outburst. The repetition in verse 9 makes clear that Paul is dealing with this problem with the utmost of seriousness. Paul says something else significant in verses 8 and 9. He speaks of a gospel in verse 8 that we have proclaimed to you, past tense. Then he says it again. Any man is proclaiming to you a gospel contrary to what you received, past tense. He's referencing the gospel he first preached when he arrived in Galatia during his first missionary journey. What was that gospel? It would be helpful to know what he first preached to the Galatians, wouldn't it? Do we happen to have a record of the gospel he preached in Galatia? We absolutely do. Go to Acts chapter 13. And this is a special, this is a special sermon in the book of Acts. We just finished a year-long study through the book of Acts, so kind of fresh in my mind. In Acts 13, he set out from Antioch, the beginning of chapter 13, on the first, on Paul and Barnabas' first missionary journey. journey. They reached the island of Cyprus in verses 4 through 12. And then they arrived in their, at, their, at their first Galatian city, the city of Antioch, in verse 14. And then we have this sermon of Paul's, and he begins in verse 16. 
And it is this sermon that is the representative, God, representative gospel he preached in Galatia and elsewhere. It is Paul's only sermon in the entire book of Acts that has the kind of fullness that it does. To many scholars, it is Paul's representative gospel sermon. And the climax of the sermon is found in verses 38 and 39. This is what the Apostle Paul is specifically counting the Galatians to compare the false gospel they just received with. He says this, Therefore, let it be known to you, brothers, that through him forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you, and that in him everyone who believes is justified from all things which you could not be justified from through the law of Moses. See the verse 39? You see the comparison? There's the, there's the true gospel and there's the false gospel. The false gospel is a justification through the law of Moses, and the true gospel, by implication, is a gospel justified by faith. And then we have a representative response in verse 46. Verse 48, I'm sorry. And when the Gentiles heard that, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord, and as many as have been appointed to eternal life believed. They believed. The same gospel that Paul preached in Acts 13, the first time he came to Galatia, is the same gospel that he, that he received himself directly from the Lord Jesus Christ on the road to Damascus. Paul in Philippians 3, uh, turn there now, he, he recounts his spiritual bi bi autobiography. And he and Paul reviews what he put his false confidence in for salvation before letting us know who he trusted now as he writes this letter. Turn to Philippians 3, and we're going to look at verses 2 through 9. And, and Paul first uh, warns the Philippians of the dogs in verse 2. Beware of the dogs. Beware of the evil workers. Uh, beware of the mutil mutilation. These are the same false teachers that had infected the Galatians. And he says before before he was exposed to the true gospel, he put his trust in the, in the flesh. He says, we are the circumcision, we worship in the Spirit of God and most of Christ Jesus, and put no confidence in the flesh. Verse 4, although I myself might have confidence even in the flesh, if anyone else has a mind to put confidence in the flesh, I far more. He used to trust in the flesh. This is a, a this means of humanity's unredeemed humanness, man's unredeemed humanity, and this is how he defines this trust in the flesh. This is how it manifested itself in verses four through six. He says in verse four, "I was circumcised the eighth day 
That's trust in the rituals of the law. He says, I'm part of the nation of Israel. That was trust in his, his heritage. He says in verse 5, of the tribe of Benjamin. Benjamin, the tribe of Benjamin, was considered one of the most prestigious tribes in Israel. That's, that's trust in the prestige of his family. He says in verse 5, the Hebrew Hebrews. That's trust in his, his race, as God's chosen people. He says in verse 5, as the law of Pharisee. This is trust in his religious credentials, his, his accomplishments. He says, as to the law found blameless. This is trust in his religious credentials and accomplishes the counsel of the Pharisee. As to zeal, a persecutor of the church. That's trust in his devotion to God and God's laws. And he says in verse 6, as to the righteousness which is in the law found blameless. This is trust in his observance to the law, his very law keeping. But then in verse 7, this is what happened when Paul met Jesus on the Damascus Road. He says in verse 7, But whatever things were gained to me, these things I have counted as loss for the sake of Christ. These are accounting terms in verse 7. Paul examined his spiritual ledger and all that was in the blackest assets they suddenly turn into red as liabilities. When he trusted in Christ for his righteousness, the, the ledger flipped. But even more than that, verse 8, he counted all things to be lost compared to the surpassing value of knowing Christ. These, the all things here uh, refers to the privileges, the honors connected to all that he put his trust in in verses 5 and 6. The prestige, his reputation, a comfortable life and salary for the rest of his life as a Pharisee, an inheritance from his parents he lost when he became a Christian. All that Paul now, when he came to Christ, all of that he now counted as lost. Four times in the New Testament you find the word lost. Two times in verses 7 and 8, and two more times in Acts 27. When Paul's ship to, to Rome capsized off of the shore of the island Malta. And loss in Acts 27 is referred to the cargo the sailors had to throw off board to keep from thinking. The sailors considered the cargo assets until they realized that their assets would sink their ship. In order for the occupants of the, the ship to survive, the cargo needed to be treated as lost. They had to throw all their assets into the ocean if they wanted to live. In the same way, Paul had to count all his gains as lost if he wanted new life in Christ. Even more, he counted his assets as rubbish in verse 8, so that he could know Christ. Words knowing Christ is, means this intimate knowledge of Him, a personal experience of Jesus, experimental knowledge of Him, as the Puritans would say, a deep intimacy with Jesus. And this is the question: What allowed Paul to know Christ 
in the way that he did in verse 8. Justification in verse 9. And to be found in him, verse 9, not having a righteousness of my own, which is from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which is from God upon faith. What you put your faith in becomes the ground of your righteousness. When Paul trusted in the law, the law was the ground of his righteousness. But when he put his faith in the gospel, when he put his faith in Jesus Christ, it meant that now Christ's personal righteousness was the very ground of his righteousness. You see, all these difficult facts about justification, all of this technical theological language, it's not just helpful for those who are straying. It is necessary for us, too, who want to have a deep, personal, intimate knowledge of Jesus. It is these hard facts of Scripture that most contribute to deep, intimate, experiential knowledge with Christ because a deep relationship with Christ depends on your confidence that this is what the Scripture says. What will never help us, what will help us never compromise the gospel? Know that the gospel is exclusive. Know that the gospel brings with it the greatest judgment when we reject it. And lastly, know that the gospel is polarizing. Point number three, the gospel is polarizing. Go back to chapter 1, verse 10. And Paul finishes uh, this, uh, this little section when he says, For am I now seeking the favor of men or of God? Or am I striving to please men? If I were still try, striving, trying to please men, I would not be a slave of Christ. Christians are called to be kind and humble and loving and gracious. We're called to be servants to all. When someone asks us to walk a mile, we walk two miles. We need to be circumspect in our speech. But when it comes to the gospel, this is when we cannot be shy about what needs to be said, whatever the cost. You see, the world is always trying to get you to compromise on the gospel. They're always trying to get you to de-emphasize the centrality of the gospel. And it's not just the world. Even Christians try to get you to not take the gospel very seriously. For the Galatians, it was those who said they knew Christ who were twisting the content of the gospel. And they were attacking Paul by saying something like this. You know, when Paul is with Jewish believers, he says that we should keep the law in addition to faith in Christ. But when he's with Gentile Christians, he leaves out the law for risk of offending them. In other words, Paul is a people pleaser. He never wants to hurt anyone's feelings. He never wants to get into difficult conversations. So Paul, in verse 10, after pronouncing a curse on the Judaizers in verses 8 and 9, says, do you really think I'm a man pleaser now? And then he finishes with this statement. If I were still trying to please men, I would not be a slave of Christ. When you become a Christian, yes, you are called to be loving, but pleasing people becomes a thing of the past when it comes to the integrity of the gospel. 
Standing up for the gospel and inevitably invites hostility and scorn. But this is part of the job description when you become a slave of Christ. A Christian is a slave of Christ. And Paul uses a, he chooses an apt synonym to describe the Christian, verse 10, in light of the context of Galatians. Because a slave cannot afford to aim at pleasing anyone other than his master. Nothing pleases God. Nothing, nothing pleases God. Pleases God more than when we protect the gospel and those around us are tempted to stray from that same gospel. We must bend more into the glory of the doctrine of justification by faith alone. When Luther discovered the doctrine of justification, he he found it in the book of, of Romans. But when, when he began to share his Discovery with the world, he didn't go to Romans, he went to the Song of Solomon, curiously enough. He went to chapter 2, verse 16, and the verse reads this, My beloved is mine, and I am his. And the reason he went there was because, just like the, the romance and marriage described in the Song of Solomon, Song of Solomon is the marriage between Jesus Christ the groom and the church, the bride of Christ. And he told the story like this. The gospel is like a story of a great and wealthy king and a poor girl, a poor woman, under a mountain of debt. In fact, the woman is a prostitute. The king represents Jesus and the and this poor woman represents the church. Luther says that there's nothing the girl can do to pay back her debts. There's nothing she can do to pay for dinner, for that matter, not even think for a moment she could one day become a queen. But shockingly enough, the king woos her, and get this, he marries her. Then on her wedding day, she says to him, All that I am, I give to you. All that I have, I share with you. And when she says that, she gives to him all her debts, all her shame, all her, all her sins. And because the king is so wealthy, he can absorb all of her debt. And the king says to her, All that I am, I give to you. All that I have, I share with you. And by the speaking of those words, and by the declaration from the king's mouth, when those words are pronounced, she is at the very moment the queen. All of his kingdom is hers. And what's important to realize is that she is still far from learning all of the manners of the court. She still has the old habits that she needs to fix. And she will learn them in time. But the point is, is that there is a disconnect between her behavior and her official status as queen. Her status and her behavior, they do not correspond with each other. And that, said Luther, is the great marriage exchange of the gospel. The King Jesus has taken our sin and our guilt and our shame, and he has given us his righteousness and his status before the Father 
confidently say that by sin, by Christ, in whom I believe, has not sinned, and all his is mine, and all mine, my sin is his. This is the great doctrine of justification by faith alone. And it is this great truth that is the Christian's sure foundation of joy and peace for sinners who live day by day for a holy God. Dear Heavenly Father, forgive us when we think that we somehow have to be good enough to go to you in prayer. Forgive us when we feel that we have to do something or some sort of work, some sort of penance to somehow regain your favor when we sin. Lord, this great truth reminds us that no matter how far we fall short, we're always queen. Always clean, and can go into the presence of the King without condemnation. And Lord, we pray as we go through Galatians that you would dig deep, dig deep within us this foundation of justification for redeemed sinners who live daily before a holy God. And we pray. That by the time we're done with the book of Galatians, that we would experientially, intimately know Jesus more because we're confident that we can go to him even on our worst days. So we pray this in your son's name. Thank you.